the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, session number 132. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. If you're struggling with the MCAT and you need a little bit more personal help, go to nextsteptestprep.com and let them know that you heard about them from the Medical School Headquarters podcast. Next Step Test Prep offers one-on-one tutoring. That's what they specialize in. They're not a company that gives group or uh, classroom sessions for MCAT test prep. They will uh, find an instructor for you and work one-on-one, finding out what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are, and developing a curriculum around you, not them. So go to nextsteptestprep.com, let them know you heard about them here at the Medical School Headquarters podcast, and they will give you a deal. All right, today's podcast, we're going to be talking to Dr. Joel Toff. He's a physician, a nephrologist, who has some unique experiences through his medical training that I think will give you a lot of insight into the path of a physician how it doesn't necessarily have to be such a straight line. We're going to talk about what was going on in the world as he was going through his medical training, some big things that were happening. We're going to talk to him about some of his experiences or his his roles in medical education with residents and medical students. And we're going to talk about what medical students really stand out to him and how you can learn from that and how you can stand out yourself. So let's get started with that. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks a lot. I want to know about your Twitter handle. Why do you have such a cool Twitter handle? So the, it started when I was a fellow, and uh, there were a couple of different rotations that you did as a fellow. I was at University of Chicago doing a nephrology fellowship. And one of the rotations was you were on the consult service, and, uh, and your beeper went off quite a bit. But the one that was really crazy was when you were on the dialysis service, and essentially you were the one guy that all the dialysis patients that are in the hospital had to go through. And it was, I felt more like a, uh, a traffic cop directing all these people, making sure that they all got their dialysis on their scheduled days during the, during the time and around their surgeries and everything. And the pager literally just constantly went off. And uh, I recorded an intro on my pager that was kidney boy, just because <laughs> I wanted the nurses just to laugh every time they called me. And uh, and so that was that was where kidney boy came from. And then years later, uh, when I signed up for Twitter, I was like, I think I'll pick up uh, kidney boy. I'll just use that as my Twitter handle. And this was a time like kind of early in medicine and Twitter when people were kind of picking uh, strange Twitter names to go by. I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside, but I, I have not given it up. One of the things that made me that really locked it in was that I was uh, tweeting to another person named. Uh, oh, was it? Um, so while you're looking that up, obviously, kidney boy, you are a kidney doctor, a nephrologist. 
Yes. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, it's a pretty cool field. It's, it's, it's one that's fallen by the wayside to a large extent. It's not getting nearly the excitement that it should get. And, um, and it's, it's a shame because there's a lot of great opportunities. Yes. So I was talking, I was talking with a, a woman named uh, Dr. Snit. And she's actually not a doctor. She's a patient. And we were kind of just bantering back and forth about science fiction books. And I had asked if she had read um, Orcs and Crake by Margaret Atwood. And all of a sudden, Margaret Atwood butts into our conversation and says, oh, I'm so glad that you're talking about my book. <laughs> and we were both like stunned. We we're like, oh, my God, it's Margaret Atwood. And then it got even weirder. She said, uh, Kidney Boy and Dr. Snit, you guys sound like superheroes. I think I'm going to draw your costumes. <laughs> And literally weeks later, she published these drawings of, uh, of Dr. Snit, who has a great costume, and then his, her sidekick, Kidney Boy. Oh, you were the sidekick? <laughs> I was the sidekick. Well, oh, you know, you're, you're the boy, boy, yeah. Of course you're the sidekick. <laughs> and and that, just, that just nailed it for me. It was just, like, okay, I'm Kidney Boy from now on. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Do, do you have that picture somewhere in your digital files? Yeah, yeah. Files? Uh, yes, I do. So... It's pretty funny what your blog looks like. It actually got some press when this happened. And we got, I got linked to by uh, The Guardian and a couple of other magazines. Oh, and wow. so my blog kind of bounces around. It bounces along. It's kind of low level. And all of a sudden on one day, it skyrockets just a tremendous amount of traffic because I talked all about the whole, the whole interaction. I'll send you a link because awesome. if, if you guys do show notes, it's, a pretty, fun, it's yes. a pretty fun element. And it kind of just shows what can happen when, you, uh, when you're on Twitter. You, just, you, know, you never know how these conversations will bounce around and who's listening. Yeah. And we've had these conversations about almost the necessity now of being on Twitter. We, we talked to Dr. Vardabedian about this kind of social media as a physician. We talked to Kevin MD, Kevin Poe about it. So it's, it's hugely important, I think, to not only reach patients, but other physicians as well. So, uh, and that's how you reached out. You actually reached out to me on Twitter and said, "Hey, I listened to your podcast, and it's it's great." And so I said, "Hey, let's have you on the show." So it's awesome. So Twitter, Twitter is yeah, amazing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. So I want to do a rewind, and we we kind of talked a little bit about what you're doing now as a nephrologist, and we'll get a little bit more into that. But I want to go back and kind of tell your story on how you got to where you are now. Are were you a traditional pre-med student going through undergrad and knowing you wanted yeah. to be a physician the whole time? Yeah, I was part of, I was about as straight arrow as you can get. I did undergrad in four years. I went to the University of Michigan. I did a, um, I did a, a Bachelor of General Studies, which was the only way I could get through undergrad without doing a foreign language, which was just my Achilles heel. And then I spent, I spent most of my time doing biology classes and literature classes. And so I graduated in four and then applied to a whole bunch of medical schools and uh, got into a couple of them and uh, matriculated at Wayne State. And, you know, after, after I got in, you know, I was I was uh, I grew up in suburban Detroit and Wayne State is uh, is right downtown. And, you know, the, th the thing about suburban Detroit is usually if you go up in the suburbs, you never go downtown. It's kind of uh uh, Detroit's kind of had it, it has a rough reputation and it's deserved. And you know, being a suburban kid, it just it, I was really intimidated by that. And I was I was uh, you know hearing the stories of how hands-on it was in medical school. I was really nervous about that. 
And I think if I had gotten into a, a, another medical school, maybe any other one, I would have gone somewhere else just because of out of fear. But uh, in the end, I got, I got into Wayne State and I got into Medical College of Virginia, which was just so expensive that it ended up being no contest. Wayne State was a great deal. And so I, I went to Wayne State and ended up being great. And I ended up living downtown kind of like, a, you know, go and conquer your fears. Don't just run away from them. And did most of my rotations at the downtown hospitals and uh, ended up having, having a great experience there. What was that experience like looking back at it now, being in a downtown hospital in Detroit, obviously not the best it's and it's gone downhill since you've been there. The patient populations, what you could have seen at the other school you got into and then being at a downtown hospital, seeing the kind of the worst of the worst. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ryan, the thing that my cohort of medical students went through that really was unique, and no one's going to go through it again, was that I started medical school in 1991, the same month that Magic Johnson came out as being HIV positive. And, you know, in many ways, like that was the moment where HIV kind of exploded. You know, there was Rock Hudson, you know, about four years earlier when he died, but Magic Johnson, someone who was so clearly heterosexual, in many ways the very symbol of heterosexuality, came out as being HIV positive and became clear that this was everybody's disease. And I graduated in 1995, which is the peak of the epidemic. And so, you know, in 1995, 50,000 Americans died of HIV, and a third of hospital admissions were HIV positive. And, you know, once I started residency, heart therapy came out that same year, and every year there were fewer and fewer deaths. And now HIV is like this, uh, it's like uh, diabetes. It's like this serious disease, but it's kind of chronic and debilitating, and you take your medicines, and you, we only really see complications when people have a social or psychiatric issues where they can't take their medications. Yeah. But when I was in medical school, it absolutely dominated our experience. And kind of in funny ways, like in a ways like when you bought a textbook, if it wasn't the latest edition, there was nothing on HIV. Patients that you're seeing, and you're seeing the worst of the worst, right? Because the hospitalized patients all have AIDS-related AIDS-related complications, opportunistic infections. I mean, like I said, we went to our 20th anniversary reunion, and we were talking to people, and you know, I said, you know, how many of you? had your first patient die of HIV, and everybody raised their hand. Like, that was our experience. The first people that we met, first, our first patients that died, were all dying of HIV. And we were seeing people dying way younger than medical students had been exposed to before. And, uh, you know, we, we came of age as doctors in the middle of this epidemic. And then all those skills that we learned, all those HIV-specific skills, just evaporated in importance because we just don't see, you don't see that multidrug-resistant TB and the um, the PCP pneumonia, and the the parasitic uh, meningitis. None, none of that, that. None of that stuff is an important skill for an internist anymore. It's just a kind of a crazy moment to be born into medicine. That's interesting that you bring that up because it's something that we don't talk a lot about on this show because it's not really pre med or medical school specific is the the kind of constant need to adapt and change to new medications and new protocols and and everything that changes about diseases like HIV. And obviously, you've been practicing now for a while. 
how do you explain that to a student that is suffering through their undergraduate, is going to suffer through medical school, is going to survive residency, and then they're going to come out and go, okay, I'm done. I'm finally done. But in reality, they're just still beginning. How do you explain that to them to keep that motivation? What I guess what I would say is the most common complaint I hear about pre-meds is they're taking organic chemistry lab or they're taking, you know, second semester of physics or calculus. And they're like, I talked to all these doctors, I shadow doctors, and they don't use any of these skills. What is the purpose of this? And, you know, the standard argument is that, well, it's the rigor and you're learning basic science. But I think one of the other skills is that you're learning how to learn. They're giving you a very challenging subject to take care of. And you need to not just get a basic understanding of it. You need to master it, right? Because you're going to, because if you're going to get to medical school, you need to be getting an A or close to an A. And then you're going to need to know that information again when you take the MCATs and you're going to be able to need to apply it. And like, that's what your career is like. You're going to be encountering new stuff that you hadn't encountered before. And you're not going to just be able to have a kind of a cursory understanding, like your patient's lives depend on it and you're going to have to master it right? And there's going to be new drugs and new fields and new physiology to learn throughout your career, right? Like that was, uh, that was the craziest thing, that realization, you know, when I was halfway done with my fellowship. So I had already been a doctor for eight or nine years. And um, I, I was learning about a, a new hormone, FGF23, that controlled phosphorus metabolism. And I was like, I learned about phosphorus metabolism eight years ago. Was that, that was wrong? Are you trying to tell me that we actually (laughs) missed an entire hormone? Uh, Yeah, we had missed an entire hormone, right? And, 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 you know, and that's happened over and over again. Like things that I've memorized as facts have like later then been turned out to be actually, that was just the explanation that we used to explain the phenomena, but it wasn't correct. And this is what's now correct. And so what you're learning in those pre-med classes is how to learn. Yeah, and I don't, and I, I don't think it's, you know, one of the other things that I think the HIV epidemic accelerated and probably would have happened anyways was the shift from textbooks to more rapidly produced materials. Is that we were all faced with the fact that all of our routine textbooks were almost completely out of date. Like if there was not the latest edition, and if the latest edition hadn't been published in the last two or three years, it was useless. And so, you know, we did not, you know, you, you, generations before us would read and memorize Harrison's and reading and memorizing Harrison's wouldn't, would be completely unapplicable for most of your patients. And it made, uh, so we were always looking for additional sources. And this is before Wikipedia and this is before FOMED and the web. But I think it really, we were very primed to look for alternative sources of information and study guides and, uh, you know, when I, uh, first aid for the boards came out when I was a medical student. Okay. And I think that that, that was part of that era. You know, and, and, you know, there was other parts that were important, like desktop publishing was maturing. You know, computer technology was making that type of publication, publishing available to more people, democratizing that process. Interesting. So you got to live and grow through that. So that's, that's good to know. So you you kind of talked about in your communications with me some of the kind of different paths that you took through medical education. So you were a, a traditional medical student by going from undergrad to medical school, but then you kind of took a detour. Why, why did you take a detour after you were medical school? 
So when I was studying for part one of the USMLE, the the first part of boards after your first two years of medical school, there was rumors of a study guide for microbiology where they took all the microbiology bugs and they put them into tables. And I just, and when I heard about it, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I need to study micro, to review micro for this test. I wish I could get a hands on it. And, but it, you know, it was a, it was ephemeral. I couldn't find it anywhere. And, you know, you know, there was rumors that people had photocopied it from another medical school. And as, as I was looking for this, I was like, you know what? I'm sure I'm not the only one who wants this. And so a friend and I, right after boards, we said, we're going to write this book. This is a great idea. Everybody wants this. The people that wrote this are being economically irresponsible by not selling it. So we're going to write this and sell it. <laughs> and so we took the next two months right after medical school. We arranged our third year to give a lot of vacation time right up front. And we spent eight weeks and we wrote this book. And it was about 200 pages, all done in Microsoft Word. And, um, and like, you know, and it was ridiculously successful. Like that, you know, to the way that it, it really seduced me into, it, so, I was so enchanted by this success. We ended up selling it across the country. About 10% of all medical students were using it for the last few years after we, we it came out. We did a, two other editions. And actually, we, uh, we then hired some other medical students to use the same concept for pharmacology, which fit perfectly, right? Same idea, put all the drugs into uh, tables. Mm-hmm. And they were just as successful, even more successful than we were with their book. And that writing team and myself and my friend, we became, uh, we were so excited about this. We were like, oh, I want to do this again. I want to write another book. And so we decided, and so my friend, her name is Sarah Fobble. And I, we decided to write a, a fluid and electrolyte and acid-based book. We said that that was the subject that was most poorly taught in our third year. And we were going to solve this problem. We were going to write the definitive fluid and electrolyte book for medical students. And so to do this, we, uh, we arranged for a year off after medical school before residency. And it wasn't entirely a year off. We ended up doing a transitional internship, but the internship was very light. I think we had like four months of inpatient service, a couple of months of outpatient service, and then six months off to write. I said, no problem. We wrote the first book in two months. We'll be able to knock this one off in six months, no problem. The book ended up taking four years to write. (laughs) We had no no idea what we were getting into. But we took that first year off, kind of, and then we both matched the following year, a year behind our class. I went to, I did med peds at Indiana. And she did internal medicine at University of Colorado. And then, uh, and after four years, the book actually finally did get done. And it was a, it was a, I call it an artistic success and a commercial failure. <laughs> like the, for the micro book was like sold like hotcakes. And this one, we could barely, we could barely move any copies, but it was a really good book. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, it was a really, it was a really fun project. And then, and it's funny when I chose that topic, I really, I chose a topic that, I thought was poorly taught in medical school, not thinking that that would be my career, but it totally became my career then. And for Sarah also, it became her career. Mm-hmm. And we're both nephrologists now. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. What did that, taking that time off and kind of stepping away from traditional medical education and kind of working on medical education, what, what did that do to your psyche and your drive to continue Obviously, burnout is a huge issue with medical students and physicians. Did that help at all? 
I, no, you know, it's funny. I'm, I have never been someone who looked at the ultimate destination. Like I wasn't a guy who thought about being attending on day one of medical school. I just thought about day two of medical school and day one of medical school. Like, what do I have to do next? And how can I enjoy the road as best as I can? Like, I always, I knew I was going to be a doctor. I had the, I had, a, I had the right MCAT scores and the right, and the right grades in undergrad. I knew I was going to get into medical school. It was harder than I thought, but I did get in. And I knew I was going to be a doctor. And I was like, well, what can I do on this road to make it as interesting as possible? And, uh, you know, I mean, think, and again, things were different right then. There was not this situation where there's not enough residency spots for medical students, which is absolutely insane to me and needs to be solved. But, uh, and so I knew I'd be able to get into residency and, and internal medicine is not, you know, I wasn't going for a surgical subspecialty. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to be such a difficult match. And so I was like, okay, let's do what will be interesting. And do I think writing a book will be something that I'll be proud of doing years from now. Yeah, I think that's something I want to do. And, you know, the other interesting thing about that, and something that, I, that was completely unanticipated, was it had that, it gave me that intoxicating flavor of what it meant to be a specialist. Like after I, even though I hadn't finished the book and was not even a quarter done after a year, like I knew more about fluids and electrolytes than anybody else that I bumped into, you know, outside of the nephrology or critical care circles. And I absolutely love that. Like I love when we got a complex electrolyte case and I could teach the attending about what was going on. Like that was so cool. And I, and it did, took me a while to realize how much I liked that, but I, I knew that I liked it a lot and it, it would have been an easy assumption from there to understand that what I really wanted to be was a specialist because, you know, I did med peds cause I thought I was going to be a, a generalist. Like that's where I, you know, when you choose med peds, that's kind of the road you're headed down, but, uh, change course. Yeah. And that's okay. We talk about course correction all That's the time. Absolutely. Find what you like. Find what you like and pursue it. And it's funny, it's funny how like it's sometimes it's difficult to actually, you know, once you even though you like doing it to say, hey, wait a minute, that's kind of what I really want to do for the rest of my life. And I and again, it's been great for me. I love being the specialist. And I'm and and I love being the teacher. And I and I, so I've adopted both those to my career. I do a lot of teaching. And I'm a kidney specialist, an esoteric little specialty. <laughs> what, on your journey to where you are now, it couldn't have been all smooth sailing. What were some of the, uh, maybe one or two of the biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome? Or maybe it was all a piece of cake. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it wasn't. I mean, you know, there's, there were always, there was always disappointments. I, you know, I think that I had a difficult time uh, kind of expressing my vision that what my career has ended up being has been really kind of a third way is that there are people that are researchers and there are people that are clinicians and that people that really dedicate their lives not to discovering things but communicating other people's discoveries which is what I do as an educator is this third way that is not well recognized in medicine and sometimes it's a difficult thing to communicate because you know what do you put on your CV? They're expecting long list of original articles. And, you know, you take, a, you know, I think, you know, my personal hero, and I think one of the most important physicians in all of America is Burton Rose. Burton Rose is the guy who created Up to Date, right? This is the guy who created the definitive medical reference for internal medicine and useful for every field of medicine from surgery to pediatrics to OB. 
and you know completely toppled the existing textbook paradigm with online and searchable content. And uh, but if you look him up in PubMed, he has twelve publications. And if you talk to people that are his contemporaries that, that were at Harvard, he was hated. Uh, maybe I'm being a little strong like that. He was not well liked or well accepted by the traditional authorities in the nephrology department. He was a nephrologist also, and because he does, he he didn't fit in the round hole. He wasn't the round peg in the round hole. He was a little bit different. He had a different mission. He was phenomenally successful, and like I said, I think he's one of the most important doctors in the world. I mean, his this creation is just is is absolutely genius. Yeah, something so, that, uh, that I think every physician uses uh, a lot. I love yeah, up-to-date. I explain up-to-date to patients as my Dr. Google. Right, right. <laughs> that it, but it, it's so good that you're willing to pay. You know, it's a, it's a, it, you know, it's a textbook that's $400, or an online resource. It's, you know, it's $400 a year, and it's absolutely worth it. I, don't, I, don't, I never hesitate to write that check. I tried to hesitate one time, and... And I very quickly was like, no, 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 I definitely don't want to start to practice medicine without this. It is, it is an amazing resource. Yeah. So um, what do you do now with medical students and residency? Yeah, so I work at a couple of different hospitals, and they have, uh, they have medical students, uh, DO students and MD students from a few different medical schools. They have international medical students come and rotate there, and I teach – Third-year medical students, a renal curriculum, uh, and you know I repeat it every three months because they get a new shipment of medical students in, and then I teach uh, a residence on a on a year-long curriculum where I give a monthly lecture on some element of nephrology, and uh, that repeats on a yearly basis. And then I'm part of the uh, I do interviews for medical school uh, for residencies, so medical students applying for residency, and then we have a nephrology fellowship where I'm also on the faculty there. And I do interviews for residents seeking to be nephrology fellows. Awesome. Is that a good summary? Is that, is yeah. that, is that what you were looking for? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. So you kind of have your hands in medical education and are seeing these medical students uh, on their journey. What, as you're interviewing the medical students for residency, as you're dealing with medical students on their rotations, what are some of the things that you see students struggling with that, that you hope that they would have learned by now or, or something that they can learn now to help them in the future? Well, I, I, you know, clearly the medical students that are most memorable are the ones that are not shy, that are willing to like get in there and participate in the discussions. And even it's not the level of knowledge that's important. It's the fact that they feel empowered and to be part of the team and are able to, you know, mix it up. And that, you know, and I'll always, I'll find the questions and the level and the questions that fit their level of education and their personal knowledge level. But what is so, so difficult and I I find so a bit frustrating for me is when they're just very reserved and they don't want to engage and that it, it feels like they're just kind of passing time with the team rather than being part of the team. And so, you know, I really encourage medical students to, you know, engage your attendings and engage your residents and don't be intimidated. That's the kind of thing that we're looking for. 
Do you think that's a symptom of not wanting to be ridiculed by attendings or fellow medical students or residents that may be around? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, you know, that's the eternal fear of people that are smart is being told, being found out to be not as smart as they think, as they try to project, right? And that you, ne- you never want that to happen. But nobody knows everything. And as a medical student, you have the ultimate excuse for not knowing things. You're not ignorant. You're just a beginner, right? And so it, it really, it's the time when you really do have that free pass to not know the answer. And um, yeah, but I think you've absolutely hit it. I think there, there is a lot of intimidation and a lot of nervousness about being humiliated and not feeling good about that. Uh, one thing we talk a lot about here is the collaboration in the pre-med path and medical school and how medicine nowadays is a team sport. Can you talk about it from your point of view as an attending, as an educator, how you see being a team player contributes to your day? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. It, it, so much of it now is is a team game, is that the when I come in in the morning to see the patients that came overnight, that there was a team that admitted the patient and they needed to do their job of admitting the patient. And then there's that huge communication issue, the handoff from the nighttime to the daytime team. And then the daytime team, right, no, they never have enough time to have fully worked up the patient on their own. And so you have a, you have a, a resident that usually has gone over a lot of the uh, computerized stuff. And then you have the intern who's spoken with the patient and examined the patient. And they have to work together when we kind of try to put together, well, what was the plan last night? Does that make sense? And there's a lot of collaboration there between the intern who has uh, you know, the first responsibility for the patient, the resident who has the responsibility for the whole team, and then myself as the attending, integrating those two and trying to fo- you know, tease out what is the problem, why was the patient admitted, what exactly do we need to do to get this patient to, to be doing better, and do we have the right diagnosis? Got so much... So much of that first night, first morning after was all the assumptions that were made last night. What are the assumptions that were made last night? What was the presumed diagnosis? And uh, were those assumptions and presumptions, were they correct? That's all teamwork. Because nobody has, you know, it's, it's like a bunch of blind men feeling an elephant. Nobody has the full story. <laughs> what a great visual. especially because I was at the zoo yesterday and saw how big elephants are about five foot in front of me. (laughs) A blind man, blind man feeling. I like that. (laughs) I can't get that out of my head. Thanks a lot. For a lot of our listeners, they're non-traditional students, students, pre-med students, students that are looking to make a change and come back into medicine as a second career, or maybe just got a slow start from undergrad. And they don't have that same structure of being in an undergrad and having the advisors and everybody around them. How do you suggest, or do you have any ideas for them to surround themselves with mentors or other people to help, help them on their path? You know, I guess what I would say is that mentors come in, in all shapes and sizes and uh, seek them out at any opportunity. Gosh, you know, this, this is going to sound completely nerdy, but the biggest mentor on my journey was a book. There was this phenomenal book on fluids and electrolytes. And I remember I was, this was a book. Not the one that, that you wrote, third, right? Not the one that I wrote. Okay, no, good. Not the one that I wrote. I was, a third, <laughs> I was a third year medical student rotating at the VA. 
And I was completely baffled by the fluids and electrolytes and why this patient got X, you know, D5 half normal saline and this one got normal saline and that one got lactated ringers. None of it made any sense to me. It all seemed arbitrary. And uh, there was a really intelligent resident. I said, well, what should I, what should I read? I got to get a book to understand this. I don't have no idea what I'm doing. I told me to get this book by Burton Rose. And so I dutifully went to the medical bookstore and got this book and it was a 1200 page book. I'm on a, I'm on a one month internal medicine rotation. He gives me a 1200 book on one element of this. I bought the book, put it on the shelf. Never didn't think I would ever look at it again. Cause it, you know, it was the act of buying it. It was like, you know, trying to, as if that would help me get the information. But uh, a year later, when we started working on thinking about doing this book, I pulled that book off the shelf and started reading it. And it was absolutely, it crystallized everything, made all of a sudden what was seemed to be arbitrary into this logical model of how fluids works in the body. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to take care of patients in such a logical and informative manner. And it, it absolutely it kind of transformed me. And, and like I said, you know, that book by Burton Rose, same guy who started up to date, personal hero for mine, modeled my career after what he has done. And so, you know, it, mentors come in, in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And, uh, and so kind of have an open mind and don't hesitate to kind of model and follow your, follow the, the patterns that may, may not be typical, but are, are still viable models for a career. So one of the typical mentors that pre-med students think about, and even medical students, is our physicians to shadow. And that seems to be a hot topic for pre-med students. I get lots of emails discussing how, how pre-med students should go about finding a physician to shadow. How, obviously, again, you're, you're in the hospital, you're at ground zero, do you have students approaching you to shadow, or how do you think these pre-med students should do that? Yeah, I've had a couple of pre-meds shadow me. They've usually been children of friends of mine that have, you know, that so they, they have a kind of a personal connection. And they, some of them have been just great experiences. I, I remember uh, one student who actually has just graduated medical school just a, just a month ago. And uh, when he, he was a pre-med, and he shadowed with me, and we were we were on the wards, and we were talking about creatinine, which is you know the basic toxic metabolite that marks kidney function. And you know, and you know, like I said, he was willing to mix it up. He said, you know, I, you know, I, I go to the gym and I take creatine. Is that the same thing? I was like, and it's like, well, there's only an I and an N difference. Like they're very similar, and in fact, they're biochemically related. Not only do they sound the same, they actually are biochemically related. That creatine is metabolized into creatinine. And then he, we, you know, he's like, well, is that going to affect my creatinine? And I was like, oh, absolutely. If you increase the creatine in, intake, it'll bump your creatinine. But it doesn't indicate a decrease in kidney function, which is the traditional interpretation of an increase in creatinine, that this ends up being a false positive. And then he's like, and then, you know, he kept talking. I was like, you know what? Why don't you go do some research on it? Let's go, let's go take a look at this. And then he presented it. And the next day he came back and he had all this information. We kind of helped him pound it into a presentation. It was kind of his first on the fly, you know, five minute presentation, kind of the traditional clinical workshop assignment, you know, give me a five minute talk on this. And it took him a couple of days to get it right, put this together. And he, you know, he did a great job. 
And I think he saw, because it was he was modeling the same behavior that the third-year medical students and the residents were also doing. They were doing these five-minute presentations. And he was able to take one of his interests and relate it to something he saw in the, clinic, in the hospital and do the same kind of process. It was a very cool experience for both me and for him. And, uh, you know, and he ended up pursuing medicine, getting into medical school, and just graduated. Yeah. So it's a, a great experience. Yeah. And, uh, it, but I, I've seen, I've had other people that come and they shadow, and they're, that's all they are. They're just like a shadow, and they don't mix it up, and they don't feel like they can, they don't feel empowered to talk. I don't know if that's, um, I'm not doing a good job, but I, I can't imagine they're getting useful, much that is useful out of it besides a checkbox. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what a lot of them are using it for. Or maybe they were told that that's exactly what they should do is just stand there and be quiet. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's funny. That's not, and in the end, sometimes that's not bad advice. That's some, that part of it is, you know, for some people, just taking in the flavor of the experience is there's something there. And that's probably worthwhile for lots of people. But if you feel empowered to talk, man, I think you get it. I think you, you, you and you have an, an attending or a team that's willing to listen to you and that doesn't find you annoying and willing to actually, <laughs> you know, bring you in and, and uh, make that uh, a real fertile grounds for discussion. Uh, that's just, it was, it was, it was, I think it was a really good experience for everybody. Yeah. That's awesome. So looking back over your whole journey to where you are now, what do you wish you would have known from the get-go to help your path easier? You know, I wish I had done some more shadowing and some real medical experience when I had been an undergrad, that this was the part of my application that was lacking, and it was an obvious hole as I was interviewing, that it just was always like, so tell us about your hospital experience. And I, I had not done a lot of or any hospital experiences that you know, my dad had been a doctor. I'd been kind of around it my whole life. I'd gone on rounds with him as a kid and just none of that stuck as a compelling story went in the interview. Like they seemed to brush right past this. And to me, it was a really important part. Like I was like, I felt like I was not getting into medicine with my eyes closed. I was not, I didn't have a, um, a television view of what medicine was like, right? Like I knew what it was really like in terms of a job and as a lifestyle. But I couldn't communicate that, and my CV and transcript certainly didn't back that up. And I think uh, I don't think that would have been a difficult thing for me to fix. I think it would have been valuable, right? I would have come in with a lot more kind of background knowledge of medicine. Like I said, I'm more of a, you know, don't tell me what's going to happen in a month. I just want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's probably not the best way to go through medical school. Yeah. Last week's podcast, we talked a lot about the negativity around medicine and, and kind of the joy that a, an acceptance letter brings a pre-med student and hearing from a physician, like, run now, don't do it. What do you tell that pre-med or the medical student that's struggling on their path and kind of wanting to quit? What do you tell them now as, as your physician why they should stick with it? To me, it's been, a, it's been a phenomenal career that's had exciting challenges all the time, new things to learn. Like, I think it delivers a lot of what it promises. Like, people want a job where they're going to get to help people, where they're going to get to meet people. And they're going to get to meet people from all walks of life, from CEOs to bums. And, uh, and I love seeing that. And 
I get such a broader worldview because of this experience. I think it is the greatest career possible. And, uh, and in the end, a lot, I think a lot of the changes that medicine is going through that we spend a lot of time focusing on, whether it's maintenance of certification or whether it's uh, changes in uh, reimbursement, end up being, uh, though they're important, they're kind of superficial. And they're not changing the focus of the job. And the focus of the job has stayed the same. And it's a great job. And, you know, I share all the, all the, those medical students' enthusiasm for getting into, into medical school. I can totally understand that. Like you are starting on a, just a phenomenal journey. And it's, you know, it's a journey that doesn't end when you finish residency or finish fellowship. Like the journey continues. There's still new, new things to be learning. New techniques, new therapies that are coming about, coming about. It's always changing. All right. Again, that was Kidney Boy, Dr. Joel Toff. I did Google uh, Kidney Boy as we were talking, and uh, it's a pretty great <laughs> image. And it looks like it was, it's even been updated since uh, the original kidney boy was drawn and so it looks pretty awesome we'll have those in the show notes you can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash 132 as always that's uh, episode 132 you can find all of our show notes if you do that slash episode number trick again go to nextsteptestprep.com and let them know you heard about them from the Medical School Headquarters podcast, save some money on your one-on-one tutoring for the MCAT. As always, I like to thank those that leave us five-star ratings and reviews. Unfortunately, this week we didn't have any new ones, so you may be able to get on the show next week, and we'll thank you loudly and proudly here if you go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes, and we will greatly appreciate any rating interview. We're up to 275 five-star ratings in iTunes. That's a phenomenal number. If you go look around, a lot of podcasts don't get anywhere close to 50 ratings. And so I feel blessed every day when I get a new rating interview. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. And it's really not about me. It's about iTunes showing other students our podcast when you rate and review we are shown higher in their rankings and so other people can find us so i would greatly appreciate that as always if you have any questions or suggestions on future topics or future guests feel free to email me i'm ryan at medicalschoolhq.net and as always i love when you can say hi to me on twitter i'm at medicalschoolhq I hope you got a ton of great information out of today's podcast. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 